Uh, I wanted to pop on, and I think this is going to be a podcast episode. I've been meaning to do an ADD podcast for over a year. And I heard this quote today from Tammy Simon from um, Sounds True. And she, it was in her email. She attributed it to somebody else, but it was like, sometimes life just, the answer is only found through living life. Sometimes only the answer is found through living life. And I heard, I read that quote today when my brain was frantically trying to find an answer to something. Emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence is not the right word. But understanding the language and experience of emotions, having an emotional vocabulary, having emotional um, intelligence, really having an understanding of our emotions. And listen, I haven't always, and I'm still a student. But we, we do know, and we learn this in business and sales school, logic makes us think, emotions make us, make us act. Our emotional experience drives everything. Our emotional experience drives everything. It drives our trust of other people. It drives our motivations. It drives our behavior. Our emotions drive so much. Okay, so we're going to hold that there. And this emotional literacy. But it's not just the words. Like, as as somebody who I call myself head-led, this does not mean that I do not have a big heart, that I my heart doesn't make decisions, or that I do not have a body. But when I, the way my being functions and the coping mechanisms that I subconsciously built, the thinking and reasoning and strategizing and learning and education parts were the strongest. And I'm learning to integrate that with my body very awkwardly. It will probably always be awkward and I'm okay with that. But my, if you put it in a context of an Enneagram, which by the way, for years has confused me until recently because I heard somebody put it in a different way. And in the Enneagram, there are head centers, body centers, and gut centers. I'm a head center person. I'm an Enneagram 7, and I can finally say that with confidence. And what I loved, this this is going to go to the third piece, which I guess is going to end up being the second piece of my conversation with you today is... And one of the reasons the Enneagram has always confused me is because I never test as a 7. I don't test as a 7. I haven't tested. I test as a 5. I test as a 2. I test as an 8. I tested as a 6 recently. I never... But all those tests you take online are asking you questions about behavior. They are not asking you questions about emotional motivation. Right? So, um, I will give the credit to Suzanne Steele. Um, on a podcast I heard of hers and I listened to a lot of hers recently and it was so fascinating to put the Enneagram in the context of motivation and it all made sense. I do not look like an Enneagram 7 anymore. Not for the last eight years. I might have in my 20s and 30s. Motivation. So that's fascinating. So here's the other piece, IFS, internal family systems. Internal family systems is the modality that I'm trained in, that I use, that I love, that I've changed everything in my business for because I find it meets a piece of work, both functionally, emotionally, spiritually, that no other coaching ever has. It also combines with body and spirit. So it's not just intellectual. And IFS comes from the position that we have a core self that for me in my life is represented by the yellow heart, which I've been drawing since I was in high school and now is a part of my brand. And um, 
helps me remember who I am at my core, my core spirit, which is good and kind and loving and the God inside of me. And then we are, by nature, multiplicity of mind. This is different from dissociative identity or multiple personality. They don't use that term anymore, but it is different. That is a um, that that is a very specific coping, extreme coping mechanism that happens in certain individuals due to severe trauma. Multiplicity of mind is that natural part of your personality that long before I had this language for it, we have all said a part of me wants this, a part of me feels that, a part of me knows this, but another part of me this and that. Like when we are disagreeing with ourselves or have, you know, the angel on one shoulder and the devil on another shoulder. Um, then there are extreme parts of us. So, something I'm not really proud of is that I have some pretty extreme, I have some parts that can get really angry up until about 35. That was very common. It's not so common for me anymore because I've done a lot of work with my anger and not just suppressing it. Um, honestly, at some point, my anger and hatred and vitriol that I felt growing inside of me because I had shoved it down to be nice and kind and good and positive um, became the front door that, that led me to a lot of this. And one of the pieces without making this a whole IFS is as we begin to get to know these parts, especially the parts that we have been socialized to believe are negative, unhelpful, bad, bad, or broken, there is a part of the process as we're building a relationship with these parts that we ask them, what are your fears and concerns? We ask them, why do you behave this way? What are you afraid would happen if you didn't behave this way? If you didn't have those thoughts, what, what are you afraid would happen? And what that question does, very similar to certain questions we have in the coaching world, but this gets it really, really, really deep, is it gets at the motivation and that's what I loved about Suzanne Steele's work with the Enneagram. It wasn't about the behavior. And so often, listen, I love studying behavior. I think it's fascinating. I'm fascinated with other people's behavior. I'm fascinated with mine. I'm fascinated with the psychology of it. I have a master's degree in educational psychology, and I have an informal nonstop education in human behavior and psychology and motivation and, and now adding emotions to that too and embodied emotions. There was a day on when I had a retreat with clients one day, and we this is before I had IFS language, but we were we were talking and someone said, Oh, I feel angry or I feel anxious. And I was like, actually, I think we're thinking anxious. We're thinking angry. And the difference between thinking angry and feeling angry is thinking angry is having thoughts about anger, which is easy for head-led people to do because we cut ourselves off from our body. But feeling anger is what are the physical sensations happening in your body during this surge of emotional energy. Emotions are, this is by Dan Newby. Um, I have a book of his called The Field Guide to em of, of Emotions. Um, we used to do some really fun work with my clients with this book. It's like a, it's like a dictionary of emotions. And many of y'all have maybe seen the emotion wheel. Um, I paid for the rights to use um, this emotion wheel um, from a colleague to begin to work with my clients and myself on just having a deeper sense of the very specific experiences of that energy, put a language to it and connect it to our experience, to the intellect, and then also to the sensations or what I sometimes call the soma. Soma means body. How is the body experience? I know how my brain is experiencing anger. How is my body experiencing anger? 
And Dan Newby says, emotions are the energy that moves us. And so any movement we make or don't make is tied to an emotion, right? Our emotion drives our experience. And so in coaching, we have this phrase, I'm stuck. Stuck is there's probably something emotional going on that needs to be addressed. And we can address it with a new behavior, but if we don't address the underlying motivation, the behavior will never out habituate, right? You can't create a physical behavior that will take away the motivation. And many years ago, I heard someone say something about alcohol and drinking. And I come from a family that has a lot of involvement in AA. Uh, My dad is a proud recover, recovered, sober, alcoholic. He spent many years in leadership in AA. I've been to many AA meetings. I have family members in Al-Anon. I have my own addictive behaviors. And a lot of ways of treating things like this are stop the behavior. And what I find is so fascinating is um, I also have many colleagues, friends, clients, many human beings I know have struggled with eating disorders. And when you have disordered eating behavior, unhelpful eating behavior, you it is not an option to stop eating. And so there are a crew of us, there's a whole section of human beings that one of the coping skills we build up One of the coping skills that we build up, this is not everybody, but if this is you and you are here listening to the live stream or if you're listening to the podcast, send me a message and just really own this. Some of us build these really proactive coping mechanisms of being nice, of being good, of performing, of excelling and caretaking other people. Some of us, and it, it's interesting because I look at the crow kids, the five crow kids, and I can't help but notice, you know, it's kind of a joke when we were little, Allison was the good, good, I was considered well-behaved. I was terrified to break rules. And my brother and my sister, the two right behind me, I can't speak for anybody else, the one older and the youngest, I can't speak for them. But the two right behind me were not afraid of getting in trouble at all. And they got to live these exciting, wild lives that honestly, I was very envious of. But as a child, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand it all now. But as a child, I was gonna, I was gonna be good. Being good is this like, core, lowercase core value of mine. Um, because I was raised in a school that taught me if I wasn't good, I was going to hell and going to be left behind. Thus, many of my motivations and thus many of my emotional reactions are connected to this coping mechanism that at the time when I was a baby and I could behave good, I could avoid pain, I could avoid disconnection, I could avoid anger, I could fly below the radar, right, by being good. I'll never forget in 2014 living in Denton, Texas, I know exactly where I was sitting and I was doing some money work, right? Some work on abundance and money, y'all. And um, I had bought this book by Amanda Owen, The Power of Receiving, a revolutionary approach to giving yourself a life you want and deserve. And I was like, oh, this is what I need to do. I need to become a receiver. And at the beginning of this book, I just went through this with one of my clients today. It was so cool. And I can't, I can't, I have it marked, but I really need to find it. But let me tell you what my takeaway was. This is not Amanda Owen's words, but this was my interpretation. 
And thank you for sticking with me. This is kind of one of those matrix of uh, matrix of ideas and it's like tinker toys and they all fit together. And I don't know if I will bring it home, but maybe today you will get some little pieces and you can, here's the thing, my puzzle will never fit you, but maybe some of these pieces will click for you. So I'm, I'm reading the Amanda Owen book and she's talking about People who feel resentful. If I don't do it, nobody else will do it. Um, I feel taken advantage of. I feel, you know, all these other things. And I'm like, yeah, me, 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 me. And somewhere in there, and I don't remember her exact language, and I wasn't able to find it this morning, but she talked about overgivers who have trouble receiving are giving, this is my interpretation, to manipulate the pleasing opinion of others, to be pleasing to other people. And I felt that in my whole gut. I didn't realize it. If you had asked me, I would, I would have denied it for years. But at that moment, in such a compassionate place, I realized how so much of the way I moved through the world had a so that attached to it. And I talk with my clients often, what is the so that attached to it? What is the so that, there's the behavior, and then there's the so that. And the so that may be right there, or it may be three or four deep. But the so that, if you keep going, you've got to go all the way to the emotional motivation. And that day in that chair, I had to acknowledge that, oh, I had always been the good one, the nice one, the kindness. My goodness was attached to so that I would be liked, loved, accepted, and belonged. So that I wouldn't be rejected. <laughs> and when I acknowledged that, I was able to own, not from a shamey place, but I was able to own, oh, I was manipulating other people's opinion of me. I recently heard it phrased as, instead of regulating myself, I was regulating everybody else's opinion instead of learning the skills of regulating myself. Not just nervous system, nervous system is a part of it, Okay, so now let me add this ADD piece on it. And I'll do a whole episode about ADD later, but I really, I actually want to write an episode and get some thoughts together. So in March, March 3rd of last, my 50th year last year, so just on a year and a half, not quite a year and a half ago, I was diagnosed with ADHD. It was not something that I ever anticipated until shortly, like the moment I was like, maybe, huh? I was able to get a diagnosis from a doctor fairly quickly. And up until I remember telling my husband, I was like, I just got an ADD diagnosis. And he was like, no kidding. I, I had no clue. I never thought of that, which means I didn't know anything about ADD other than the stereotypes. Again, I'm not going to go into it, but the particular places where ADD, the way my brain is made up is, so number one, my brain does not create enough dopamine. Never, and I was like, why does somebody with ADD need this kind of med? Because my brain does not create the feel-good chemicals the attention chemicals, the focus chemicals. I did not struggle with depression clinically. That's what I thought I clinically struggled with depression. I have a brain that does not make as much dopamine. There's also a whole bunch of good things about IDD. I'll do that in another episode. So my brain doesn't make enough dopamine. I was like, remember back when I, for those of you who've been around a while for for many years, I was famous for the naps that I took. If, if I talked about how much sleep I get regularly, y'all would hate me. And it was actually how much sleep I required to function well. 
It's one of the reasons why I don't do well in an eight to five job, because if I don't have enough balance in and around me, the second thing that shows up in my world with ADD is difficulty emotionally regulating my emotions. So not only and regulating my thinking. So that's two things. So number one, regulating my thinking and then regulating emotions, aka the energy that moves me. And coaching has done a lot to help me regulate my thinking, but it has done nothing to help me regulate my nervous system and my emotions, which are two pieces that I've been working on for the last seven years and now are absolutely foundational. Ask my sweet client sometimes because I'm often doing nervous system checks before, you know, they come with a problem and we've got to do a nervous system check first and their brain wants to solve an analytical problem, but we cannot solve an analytical problem. We cannot learn something new when our nervous system is dysregulated. Listen, I know there are people out there that are experts in the nervous system. I don't ever intend to become, and there is a reason I do not use all the polyvagal theory terms, because that's not my area of expertise. And it is enough for some of us to just be able to recognize without having to get a PhD in that and know all the scientific terms. You don't need all that. If you want it, great. But my nervous system is fried or not fried, right? And and I would be aware if I was really off the charts, but I did not understand the ways that invisibly I presented. I was moving through the world. I didn't present that way because you couldn't see it, but I was moving through the world with a dysregulated nervous system and with emotions that were not regulated, much less thoughts that were regulated. So very often I have this conversation with my husband quite often because I overthink. Guess what? That's what ADD brains do. They either overthink or they underthink or while they're overthinking, they, and this is what happened to me this morning, while they're overthinking, they're, they're literally sliced in half and it drops out from under you. So I can have total mental stalls. I can have complete clarity and genius. And then I can have mental sputtering and choking. Those are part of the experience of having a brain that has ADHD. There's a bunch of other stuff. Those are my top three things. Trouble regulating my nervous system, trouble uh, body not making enough, brain not making enough dopamine, which makes me tired, which then exacerbates not being able to regulate my thinking and not be able to regulate my um, emotions. Regulating your thinking and regulating your emotions are also, in my system, I can't speak for everybody else, but they are also regulated by external stimuli. They are regulated by relational stimuli and pressure. They are regulated by my diet and my exercise as well. I'm amazed at how much behavior change without understanding motivation. And I know many of us have seen and heard like Simon Sinek's big why. And it's both a gift and then it's like the word love. I told a friend the other day, I wanted her to know that I know that love is an overused word and that I, but that I was choosing that word on purpose. And, and maybe it's the lazy writer in me because at times I don't feel like working that hard, but you know, I, like, I know that love is overused. And then there are times when it's like, no, I love you. And I think our whys are like that. And listen, I got to tell you, I'm going to interject this experience and little story here. I was reaching out to my friend, Jason Goldberg. Jason Goldberg is a buddy of mine. He is a speaker and a coach and an MC and does, he does the MC for Mind Valley's things. He is an amazing dude. 
we have some inside jokes. I'm enough friends with him. I'm not like everyday friends with him, but I got him in my cell phone. I reached out and I was like, if I'm going to do some speaking training, because I was thinking, wouldn't it be nice to get back on the speaker circuit? and start speaking and getting paid to speak on stage instead of having my own events, right? And so I called Jason and set up an official appointment to talk about hiring him to do some very specific speaking training, right? I'm wanting to bring something new into my life and get some coaching and behavior shifts and practices for the purpose of creating that. And Jason gets on the call with me and I don't remember everything, but I remember what I took away. And he really dug down, why did I want to do this? And I would talk, 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 talk. And he would go, no, no. Why do you want to do this? And, and he, as we kept digging, my only why was, was conditioning. My only why was conditioning. It wasn't a true desire or true motivation. And so many of us are running around the world trying to implement, trying to create, trying to perform something that's been conditioned into us. There's nothing wrong with going and having a speaking career. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. And my body doesn't want to do that at this point in time. My emotions don't want to do that at this point in time. My brain doesn't even want to do it. Right? I was just on autopilot and I love, and he, 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 his, without saying why, he was like, what's your motivation for doing this? And here I am recording a podcast for you. And this morning, one of the things that I was trying to do, if you're ADD and you start looking for a template or a chart, you know you're having a bad ADD day because we will go and buy a planner instead of just go, you know what, my brain not functioning fully today or my meds wore off or whatever it is. And I chuckled at myself. I was like, I don't need a podcast planner. I've been doing a podcast for eight years without a podcast planner. I just need to figure out my why for doing, like, what is my motivation for doing a podcast? What is my motivation for continuing to do a podcast? What is my motivation for closing down Soli's? What is my, like, when I say motivation, I mean my just deep, holy, pure, and true for me, not for anybody else. If you're selling something in your business, and I see this all the time, oh, I want to do this, I want to do this. Why? What is your motivation for doing that? Oh, I want to make more money. Why? But it's, it's interesting, the mathematical equations, and those of us know in business that running a business is a math equation, and then we get to color it with all of our creativity. But ultimately, it's a math equation. And listen, I shut down a very large, lucrative $15,000 a month minimum program. And I am building a one-on-one roster and I have five clients. I need 10. (laughs) So I'm short right now. Okay. Let's just be honest here. Right. And so when I ask myself, what's most important of all the things in my mind, what's the most important? Honestly, right now, client creation is important. And then all of a sudden my brain starts running off and then my emotions start running off. And it's like this giant wrestling match. And the problem is not solved outside of me. The problem first goes back to nervous system. It goes back to all the ways that I need to care for my ADD-ness, my humanness, my parts. And then the, the answers and the actions will come. This is one thing I've known. I keep trying to control the actions. But the actions that make the money are actually my nurturing practices. Because my nurturing practices soothe the emotional motivations so that I can behave with calm confidence. I wish I had set up and I looked for it once, but I just don't feel like spending the money right now. Um, I wish I had like a way to draw here for you. I miss being able to draw on the board because I want to map some of this out visually. When we can get skilled at sourcing our own motivations, I can't remember if I talked about this with AA. I heard a coach say, I may have totally dropped the ball on this. I heard a a coach talk about 
stopping drinking. And her question was, what is what it, when you reach for a drink, what are you craving? I love that. If you have a habit or something that you're doing, I do this with Amazon, okay? I may not be as addicted to alcohol as I used to be, but I do this with Amazon. When I go to put something in my Amazon cart, I have taught myself to slow down and ask myself, what am I craving? And 90% of the stuff that goes in my Amazon cart comes out. Sometimes I also let it sit 24 hours. And it's not to punish myself or to change my behavior, but if I can check in, what are you craving? And actually, I told my client today, one of the times that I actually have a physical craving for an alcoholic drink is after a really good long day of work. And I think that's so funny because a lot of people drink to not feel pain. And so I started asking myself, what are you craving? Like when you, when you get off this call and you're like jonesing for a happy hour, what am I craving? And I noticed it yesterday because I craved it yesterday. And I thought, what am I craving? And I just slowed the whole process down. What am I craving? Because the craving speaks to the motivation and the craving speaks to something my internal world needs that I'm fixing with an external behavior. There is a feeling of charged in my nervous system. So they say anxiety can be just like excitement in your nervous system. They say fear and discomfort can be just like excitement and joy. And so I have a how good are you allowed to feel meter. And when I'm feeling the vibration, like I'm not talking mystic vibration. I'm talking about literally my nervous system is like amped up from goodness. I get an alarm. In, in my body that says, you better not feel that good, get a drink, soften that shit out, right? So for me, drinking stops me from feeling over good is the story, my, my, like the truth of what my body is saying. And then the other thing was, it, um, and, and listen, one of the reasons I don't want to feel overly good, listen to, listen to how these all connect. One of the reasons I don't want to feel overly good, and this is very subconscious and systematized, is because when I got too emotional, whether it was uncomfortable emotions, like crying, or whether it was too joyful, that was too much. So I have parts that their protection is so that we won't be too much because if we are too much for other people, we will be disconnected. So even being too happy, too successful, too joyful, my body starts setting off an alarm. And alcohol is one of the ways that my body calms down. The shopping is, a, is on the other end of the spectrum. The buying something my body is craving stimulation. My body wants the dopamine hit. My mom and sister and I were laughing about this yesterday. We're like, I bought this thing because I needed the dopamine hit, but it didn't fix the dopamine hit. I say this with some, what I love is that we're aware of it. When you're aware of it, you don't necessarily have to eliminate it. You don't have to eliminate the behavior of shopping. You, you instead work with the thing at a different place. You work with what is my body? What is my psychological, emotional? What What are the needs and fears and concerns going on underneath? What is the deepest core motivations? I get so excited about this. And when we can just be with that, I call it be with skills. There's a lot of ways to be with, but we could just be with that. be present with it, be, um, I've, I've shared this a lot recently, this um, definition of attunement by Francis Weller. I'm looking up at my, um, I have it posted on the board right up behind my computer. Attunement is a particular quality of attention wedded with affection, 
offered by someone we love and trust. And to me, that is the opposite of disconnection, that our world is hurting from disconnection, not just from each other, but ultimately from disconnection from ourselves. And my amazing client this morning is like me in the sense that her primary coping skills are loving on other people and doing a good job at work. Which makes it really easy for us to be connected to work and connected to everybody else, but to accidentally be disconnected from ourselves. And listen, in the same way somebody else may drink alcohol to disconnect from the pain of themselves, but alcohol has a 12-step program Many of us use socially acceptable things to subconsciously protect from the pain we're feeling inside. And it may not be the pain, like massive trauma. It could be just subtle things we're carrying. Doesn't mean you're broken. But there are... Stimulus response behavior equations going off in your mind, body, spirit all the time. And if we are looking to make a change in our life because something is no longer tolerable or endurable or or we get just an intuitive sense that "Mm, this isn't working for me. And they talk about, right, doing the work. And early on in my IFS, I know I stopped. That's not the end of a sentence. But early on in my IFS, when I would start reading parts, I would tell my clients, because I was really telling myself, listen to your parts. You don't have to believe them. And I'll give you an example in a minute. I was like, you can listen to another human being without agreeing with them. Because many of my clients were afraid to listen to their anger, afraid to hear what their anxiety had to say, afraid to hear the voice of their overwhelm, because we have been taught not to pay attention. We have been taught to bypass that. We have been taught to jump over it. We've been taught to exercise it away, pray it away, um, orgasm away, whatever it is. We have not been taught to build a relationship with uncomfortable feelings on any end of the spectrum. Neither did our parents. That's why they couldn't tolerate our feelings. Okay, y'all realize that. Reason, not fault. Reason, not fault. I always say that. Oh, this is just the mathematical tracking back. That's why I love math and science, believe it or not. Let me take a sip of water and get back to my this point that I was, it's good. So I used to say, just listen. Like if I'm in an argument with my husband, my husband and I don't agree on a lot of things. And early on in our relationship, there's a lot we agree on, but there's a lot we don't agree on. And if I would, you know, there's a part of me, old wounds that don't do any kind of disagreement. I didn't know how to disagree safely with somebody. I didn't know how to feel safe in my body Even if I logically knew, I didn't know how to feel safe. My body did not know how to hold the energy of what I experienced in disagreement. And so I I remember, and it was actually a a NLP tool, right? Like we're taught how to handle objections in real estate and in sales. When somebody tells you, here's why I can't buy, we were taught to handle that. I don't handle objections anymore. I believe them. Let me say that again. I don't handle objections in my sales process anymore. I believe them. Um, it's a whole nother podcast that we will probably never remember to do for you. But so I used to like the hand, the tool for handling an objection was the person um, I used to use the analogy of throwing a baseball, right? So I get on my glove. My husband is going to throw his opinion, his thing at me. And instead of ducking or getting hit by it, I'm going to catch it with my glove by saying, thank you for sharing that with me. And I remember like my husband and I used to sit at this very desk and he sat on one side and I sat on the other and we had it in our office. And I remember having a conversation with him and I did something new instead of 
batting the ball back. When he tossed the ball at me, I caught it. And I said, thank you for sharing. And I did that a few times over the years. And he, at one point he goes, because, and every time I did it, his shoulders would drop, like the defensiveness would go away in both me and in him. And we're both defensive people. We're both defensive protectors. That's hilarious. Not hilarious. And, uh, It, right? Like it's a, it's a slightly different behavior to catch that. And so in my mind, I was like, just catch whatever your part is throwing at you. And then the more that I genuinely curiously listened to parts from a place of just core energy, I realized that every single thing my parts were saying to me was true and a possibility. And I'll share a, a real version of what that looks for me. And I'll use fighting with my husband as an example. I'll use conflict. And listen, <laughs> I'm married to the nicest, kindest man, and we have a lot of conflict. Conflict doesn't have to mean a fight. It just, to, just things aren't lining up completely. And what happens inside of me, uh, I'm going to try to stick it to the simplest version because it's actually pretty complex. Also, a lot of it depends on how my nervous system, how my mind is, how other invisible things are going. I take, the, he always says, you take everything so personally. And he's right. I have parts that take on what is handed to me. And part of that is because of the ADHD, I have trouble regulating my sensations, emotions. If emotions are actually sensations and not language, but we use language to describe them, I have trouble regulating sensations in my body. And that's very uncomfortable because when you are a wiggly, squirmy thing and parents aren't comfortable with that, it's dangerous. If a parent doesn't have a calm nervous system and you irritate them, for whatever reason, not that you're being irritating, but your behavior is like, it's not safe physically, emotionally. Got it. So I, I would do all this work and I check in with these parts and I'd be like, part of, you know, Hey, defensive part, right. A really emotional part. I remember I actually have told this story many times there. Were, I used to really rage and Bill and I were getting, we had another disagreement. I don't even remember what it was about. I know exactly where we were standing. I know which house of the 27 that we've lived in. And um, I felt my body, I felt the sensations of rage coming on, the pre-rage where I would used to lose my shit. Because I grew up in a family that lost their shit on a daily basis. And so I felt that starting to happen. And all I knew at the time was the tool stop. I didn't know any of this other stuff. I knew the tool stop. But before you go into the hole, there's some book called Relationship Tools for Change by John Gray. I have the PDF of it and it had like two, a couple of people go into the hole. And I love that analogy because it doesn't have to be with just your spouse. Like we all have that hole we get into. Um, so I stopped and I said, I know we're in the middle of the argument. I'm not leading, but I need a break. And I backed into the bathroom and I shut the double doors and I just sat on the edge and I took a few breaths. I didn't have any of the tools I have now, but I did go, I, you know, I got a little calmer through breath. And I said, what are you afraid of, Allison? And I heard a voice inside of me that said, I'm afraid he'll leave. And at the time, that's all I knew to ask. And I went out to him after about two minutes and I said, I know I'm getting worked up. And really, I'm just afraid you're going to leave me. And I know you're not. That's old story, but I'm afraid you're going to leave. And his shoulders dropped and he said, I'm not going to leave you. You think just because we fight, I'm going to leave? And listen, in my house fighting, my dad left my experience as a child was my dad left and didn't love us. Is that true? No. My dad left to regulate his nervous system so he could come back calm so he wouldn't explode, right? The adult version is dad took some time away, calmed down, and then came back and made up with my mom. But the three-year-old just knows dad left. 
my first husband left on a Wednesday afternoon at four o'clock. So fucking weird. And so there's some old stories that live in my body that drive and for many years drove certain performative behaviors, certain people-pleasing behaviors to prevent being left. But what was, what was really happening is I would leave myself by doing those performative behaviors, not being authentically me. And when I learned to trust myself and be there for myself. So now when I look at a part and she's like, I'm afraid we're going to get left. I through a longer process that I'm going to verbally share with you, but I make sure there's a physical somatic, like I'm really connected with her. I'm not just verbally giving her an answer. And I say, honey, I get, it is no fun when someone leaves your life for whatever reason. And I can't promise you Bill will never leave. I can't promise you all kinds of people will never leave. That is not within our control. But I can promise I will never leave you. And I am here for you now. And the more I have done that, when she flares up in me, the less she flares up. She now knows that I won't leave her. And she is now starting to get that people come and go into our lives and that there is grief involved in it but that it is exhausting and impossible to live, work, relate, constantly trying to please other people and bend their, like, we can regulate our nervous system, we can take care of our mind and thoughts, we can take care of our emotions, and we cannot control that. So when they talk about, you can't control them, what can you control? Like, here's the problem, y'all, we haven't been taught the skills, how to do that. We've only been taught how to perform so that other people will like us. And some of that comes with age, but dude, dude, dude. There are some behavior skills that we now know that our parents didn't know. They didn't get from their parents. And I may be 51 and a half next week. But I tell you what, I'm going to spend the rest of my life learning these tools and teaching them to other people. I don't need to be an expert. You don't have to go take, listen, if you want to be an expert in polyvagal theory, be an expert in polyvagal theory. I want to be an expert in leading myself, understanding and leading myself so that, what's my motivation? So that I can feel and be well and then contribute to my society. What's my purpose? Those two things. To take care of myself and love on other people. Take care of myself. and It's not love on other people and then take care of myself. And listen, I don't have one purpose. My purpose is, is to experience the life I've been given. It's not just to feel good either. That's why the, I changed the name of the podcast to The Wild Edge of Being Human. My purpose is to learn the skills of living in the wild edges of this life that the universe, spirit, God, whatever has given me. My purpose is to learn to be with it and find, you know, be with the grief and be with the joy. And that isn't just done through the brain. For me, the brain is my front porch. Learning shit, I love to learn shit. (laughs) I love it. I have learned. Listen, for some people, dancing regulates their nervous system. Dancing makes me feel like shit, unless I'm drunk. So, Actually, learning something calms my body down enough to let me go inside and start paying attention to sensations and do deeper work. If something makes sense to me. And so I've had a lot of little pieces in here. If you have ADD or you have a neurodivergent brain, which means it is formed differently. And I heard this guy say this. There is no cure. You can set up systems around it. This this is huge, for me at least. And as my therapist and I discussed, it is not a pathology, meaning it is not a problem. It is not 
um, it is not a bad, it is not bad. Allison, you are not bad. It is not a badness. And not being diagnosed, but holding my ability to emotionally regulate or cognitively regulate to the standard of a neurotypical brain and getting the feedback from society that I was too much or I required too much made me feel not normal. And if I'm not normal, even though I didn't use this word with myself, I'm broken. And if I'm broken, I'm unlovable. And when I can recognize that my difficulties due to the way my brain is fearfully and wonderfully made are just differences. I'm happy to accept the brilliance differences. Y'all realize my brain is brilliant? It's never in a straight line, clearly, but my brain is brilliant. The way, the way I, I can pick up patterns, both intellectually and somatically, and categorize and organize and make connections. And I was, I was joking with a friend the other day. I was telling her like every once in a while when I get tired, I go to LinkedIn and look at jobs and I'm, I'm there for about five minutes. There's a lot of jobs I could do, but I ain't doing it for that low money. And I don't know how many employers can handle all this. I'm a lot. I require a lot. And you know what? At home, I've set up a lot. And when I go out into the world, I have to have my own accommodations. I have to make accommodations for myself so that my nervous system and my brain can thrive. And the number one thing that goes against that is the old parts of me that are worried what everybody else thinks, if I'll be too much, if I'll fit in. I don't know if any of that made sense. Hopefully, some of the nuggets from it, like think about your nervous system. Think about what's like you're not broken. That's how I ended up in personal development. Like, oh, if I can, if I can get better at this, right? The reality is, if all of us stop doing personal development today, we are still lovable. I told my, I always play this game with my clients. I say, if you were in a conscious coma, but nobody knew you were conscious, so you're in a coma in the hospital. What meaning and value would your life have? And they were like, well, none, because I couldn't do anything. And I was like, I don't believe that's true. I said, if it was your child, if your child were in a coma or paralyzed and couldn't talk and couldn't communicate and couldn't do anything, like our value is not in our doing. That stuff's just extra and fun. And yes, we need to do. But your value, it's so mind-blowing. We can't, I, can't, I haven't gotten it yet. I'm working on it. Anyways, I just wanted to share some of those things with you. I wanted to share that about emotional experience. I wanted to share it about ADHD, the intersection with ADHD. And I want to share about motivation. And so often we're looking at the behaviors and the way the behaviors make us feel. And we're not looking a few layers deep at our core motivations. And then we're not looking at the coping skills to meet those motivations and that's where the magic is but it's learned behavior i love you thank you for watching or for listening i'll see you soon